I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, March 5th, 2012. Mm -mm. Boy, we got more news on this uh, Rick Warren, Kingsway, Chris Lom thing. details forthcoming thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro and i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god uh, just because you have an opinion about God doesn't mean your opinion's right. In fact, if your opinion isn't based in what God has revealed about himself, chances are your opinions, well, uh, they're worth what I pay for them, which is nothing. So, yeah, it's <laughs> plain and simple. Yeah, some So many people, uh, well, because we're born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God, seem to think that their opinions, their religious ideas, their religious musings and speculations somehow rise to the point of truth regarding God. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Scripture tells us that we're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That means when you have an idolatrous idea about God, an idea that doesn't square with what God has revealed about himself, or you've spoken where God is silent, or you've come up with an idea where that God is, you know, basically flat out contradicted in His revealed Word, uh, then your uh, ideas about God are wrong. Not only are they wrong, they're sinful, they're idolatrous, and you must repent and be forgiven for them. Christians do not have the freedom to come up with their own ideas about God. Think of it this way. Scripture reveals that all Christians are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. God making his appeal through us to the world to be reconciled to God. Ambassadors never, and I mean never, make policy. Their job is to convey the policy that has been decided by the king. 
Now, understand, Christianity in the kingdom of God, this is a kingdom thing. Uh, this is not a republic. It's not a democracy. You don't get to have a vote as to whether or not Jesus is king. And uh, we don't do uh, daily uh, opinion polls to see how Jesus' approval ratings are so that Jesus can we can register our complaints with Jesus to let him know, hey, listen, you know, some of these ideas that you have, Jesus, you know, come on, that you're the only way... Uh, you know, I, I've got I've got pagan neighbors who just seem like nice people, and I I I just really don't like the idea that you're saying that they're going to spend an eternity in hell if they don't repent and trust in you only for the forgiveness of their sins. I mean, that seems awfully narrow. And I mean, in these post in this postmodern age, I mean, kind of antiquated. This is you're behind the times, Jesus. And so we've taken an opinion poll among people in the church, and we've decided that we don't like your policies, and so we're going to write our own. That's literally what's going on in so many churches today. And this is sinful. This is idolatrous. It is flat-out rebellion against God. The Greek word, uh, the functional Greek word here is, is apostasia, which means rebellion. This is rebellion against God himself. And this should not be taking place in any congregation that calls itself Christian. And if you're attending a congregation or a church that calls itself Christian and somehow has affiliated itself visibly you know, to Jesus Christ, uh, then the, the pastor there doesn't get to make policy. He is to tell you as an ambassador what the policy is. And he is to proclaim God's word, not monkey with it. He is to preach what's in the scriptures not anything else. Now, listen, there's a lot of things that we could talk about as far as being true. Okay, we could, you know, for instance, you know, if you were to look in the book of nature, you know, there's a, there's some, you know, you can look at nature and you can divine a few things about God from nature, but it <clears throat> not much as far as the details are concerned and nothing as far as, um, well, it being able to save you. Romans 1 makes it clear that what might be known about God is clear from what he has made, so that men are without excuse. So, um, the you know what's revealed in nature doesn't save anybody. Uh, why? Because well, the gospel's not revealed in nature. Uh, that's only revealed in the apostolic teaching found in well his word. But the point I'm making is this: is that um, yeah, you can find out some things about God in nature, and uh, you can you you can you know they'd be true. For instance, uh, Einstein's discovery of the uh, the formula regarding relativity, E equals mc squared. That's absolutely a true formula. It's true. Uh, problem. Um, and that is, is that uh, if you were to get up and, and on a Sunday morning preach about the complexities of E equals mc squared, although everything you would be preaching is true, that's not what a pastor is called to preach. You could, if you wanted to, open up a Chilton's Guide to Auto Mechanic you know, Repair for uh, a 1996 Toyota Corolla, okay? And you could talk about, you know, how all the different parts of the Corolla work and, you know, it, as far as the combustion engine inside of the Corolla and, you know, and, and discuss the proper procedure for changing the oil, changing the spark plugs, uh, tuning uh, you know some of the you know some of the things regarding making that engine really work well. Not everything you'd say would be true, but that's not what a pastor's called to preach. Pastor's not called to preach what's true just because it's true. 
A pastor is called to preach the word, to over and again herald and proclaim, to stand in the pulpit, open the word, and proclaim to God's redeemed, repented, and forgiven saints what it is that he has revealed regarding himself in his word. And you sit there and go, why? We've already heard it before. Why? Because, well, this is what God has said his will is, and we don't get to vote on it. You see, it's a kingdom, not a democracy, not a republic. Jesus doesn't work off of opinion polls. And so if Jesus says something to the effect of pastors preach the word in season and out of season, guess what your pastor is supposed to be doing? Preaching the word in season and out of season. Now, I would say that there's probably good reason for that. And I would remind you that God himself in the Old Testament and Jesus reaffirming it in the New Testament has said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So God understands better than we do because he created us what it is that we need, even much more so for Christians. Because Christians, we are a new creation in Christ, that we have a new man living in us, that we've been raised from the dead spiritually through the preaching of his word and through the preaching of the gospel. And God himself says of his people that they do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when we gather as a congregation, when we gather as God's elect, as when we gather as God's chosen saints and people who have been brought, bought by the blood of Christ and brought to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when we gather together as a church, we are to feast on the very word of God, because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if your pastor isn't feeding you, if your pastor has taken the approach, ah, it's not my responsibility to feed you, feed yourself, then you got a big problem. That man's not a pastor, and he's in direct violation to what God's Word tells him to do. And if instead he decides, oh, I'm, I'm going to preach you know, maybe a little bit of God's Word, but, you know, listen, this, is, this preaching the Word stuff, it just isn't working anymore. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, look, it's 2012. The people out there, they want something relevant for, them, for their lives. I mean, you want me to open up the Bible and tell stories about Esau and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and... Balaam's donkey and David. I mean, all those people. Uh, come on. No, no, no. People, that doesn't work anymore. Nobody wants that. What they need is something that'll, you know, make their lives better. You know, they need some life tips, some some improvement advice, you know, some something they can grasp onto that works. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you hear things like that, and there are pastors who speak like that openly. When you hear something like that, run. And I am not over-exaggerating. Run. Because your pastor is in direct rebellion against what God has commanded him to do. It is not your pastor's job to assess whether or not the preaching of his word, of, of God's word, works or doesn't work. 
it will accomplish the thing that God sends it out to do. It is his word, and it's his business as to what it is that he wants to accomplish with his word, whether through the preaching of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the clear proclamation of his word. God brings lost sinners to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ and regenerates them, causing them to be born again so that they then, rather than being rebel sinners, are repentant and humbled Christians, adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. If that's what he wants to accomplish in his preaching, that's God's business. The pastor is to preach the word. If, on the other hand, God, through the preaching of his word, has decided that he's going to harden people's heart, and he's going to ultimately use that preach word to judge them, that's God's business, not yours, dear pastor. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of all of these pastors out there making these lame excuses saying, it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Are you saying that God's word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword doesn't work? Come on. Whose word are we talking about this being? Your words, my words, this isn't about methodology. This is about the one true God speaking and revealing and proclaiming who he is and what he's done for us and calling all people in all nations to repentance and faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to sit there and say, I don't know if this is going to work. Um, that's not the talk of somebody who trusts God's word. That's the talk of unbelief. That's the talk of doubt. That's the talk, well, of somebody who doesn't believe what God's word says about itself. That's not what pastors are called to do. Trust that God, who knows what his word is sent out to accomplish to do, will accomplish what he sends his word out to do. And it's not your business to decide whether it works or not, or even to measure its effectiveness. Because who are we to say that we can understand a priori, that we understand everything that God intends to accomplish through the proclamation, preaching, and teaching of his word. We're ambassadors. We don't make policy. We only announce it. Something to keep in mind. All right. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. As I mentioned at the top of the program, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, there's a little bit more information regarding the, um, well, the Rick Warren uh, white paper that was sent out late on Friday and then, you know, hit the Christian Post on Saturday. And that is, is that when on Friday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I was clear that I was very happy and very, well, not proud. That, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but I, I, I think that Rick Warren did the right thing by clearly stating that Islam and Christianity do not worship the same God. At the same time, that white paper that he sent out, um, I'm sorry, but there's some there's some spin going on in that document, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in the second half of the first hour today. Um, so just be prepared for that, because uh, Jim Hinch, the author of the Orange County Register article that kind of started this whole well, brouhaha, kerfuffle, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, he has uh, he has had a private uh, email correspondence with uh, Ken Silva of Apprising.org, 
And we're going to be looking at uh, the email that Jim Hinch sent to uh, Ken Silva. And in that email, he reveals uh, or, uh, a portion. He gives verbatim uh, the portion of the Kingsway document that led him to conclude that Saddleback in their building of common ground with Muslims in Los Angeles um, was basically coming to the conclusion that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Now, Rick Warren, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't really publicly discussed this Kingsway document. And in the white paper that was sent out on Friday and uh, hit the Christian Post on Saturday, um, well, kind of skirts the issue and never addresses it directly. So we're going to take a look at that in the second part of hour number one. And uh, this, what remains of uh, the first half of hour number one, uh, we've got a, uh, well, a... <laughs> An emergent update, and that is is that uh, Roman Catholic monk and mystic Richard Rohr uh, recently appeared on Doug Paget Radio, and we're going to share with you uh, what went on there. And then uh, those of you who are familiar with the emergent uh, guy by the name of Adam Walker Cleveland, well, here we are, it's March, and uh, he's going to be doing a month-long series on his blog entitled Reimagining Christianity. Reimagining it. I didn't know that you can do such a thing. I thought the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, like I said, second half of uh, the, this first hour, we're going to take a look at the ongoing story regarding uh, the Chrislam flap with Rick Warren and, you know, regarding the the article that appeared in the Orange County Register. And then in hour number two, we're going to be do, uh, reviewing a Tommy Sparger sermon. He's been doing a sermon series. I think he's going to, when it's all done, it's going to be like 12 weeks long. And the name of the series is Move. And uh, I want you to hear this because, well, this is an example of just a wrong-headed approach to what a pastor is supposed to be doing. And uh, you, you'll, you'll understand in hour number two. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. You are listening to the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra and their rendition of Richard Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. This is a postmodern homage to the philosophical work of Friedrich Nietzsche, celebrating their release from the bonds of modernist interpretations of notes. They are they are playing as the spirit leads them. Doug Paget presiding, by the way. Oh, the humanity. Brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it. What a tour de force. What a triumph for postmodernity. Thank you to the Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra for their rendition of also Sprock Zarathustra. <laughs> oh, man. I, yeah, this is one of my favorite. Still is my, my all-time favorite. 
um, music segments for when we uh, introduce a uh, particular portion of the program. Here is a conversation between Roman Catholic mystic and monk Richard Rohr and Doug Paget of the Emergent Church on Doug Paget Radio. And um, see if you can make any biblical sense of this conversation. Welcome back to Veggie Radio on AM 950 com. Uh, in a conversation with Father Richard Rohr on his book, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. <laughs> I mean, just the name of the book, Falling Upwards. <laughs> when was the last time that happened to you? When did you fall up? Have any of you ever fallen up? I mean, it reminds me of, remember the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books? There Apparently there's a way in which you can fly. And basically it involves you um, tripping and falling but missing the uh, the earth or the, missing the ground. And by doing so, you can then begin to fly. Um, very postmodern. Yes, we're going to fall upwards. I have no idea what that means. And spirituality for the two halves of life. Hmm. Okay. Two halves. Um, not recalling anything about the Bible mentioning spirituality for the two halves of life, but let's listen in on the conversation. Maybe we can fi- figure out a little bit more about what's going on here. Uh, Richard, thanks again for, for being on the show. I have a little theory that I've been uh, kicking around in my head, and I'm interested in your comments uh, on on this because your your book, I think, addresses this. I- you have a theory, Doug. Hmm. I have a sense that different people um, are just... I don't know if it's temperamentally or just their circumstance or just sort of their 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 age of their soul, like is really well. The what the age of their soul? Now I did, I want to keep y'all to not understand this. Doug Paget is a man who is going to be holding a church planter academy in in a couple of months up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, and and he you know has been a part of leadership network in the past and emergent village and. And, you know, claims that this emergent conversation thing is all part of Christianity. Um, When somebody who claims to be part of Christianity starts talking about the age of someone's soul, hmm, that's um, more than just a smidge problematic, don't you think? Yeah, the age of my soul, by the way, um, I was born in 1968, so... Nine months before I was born, I was conceived. I, you know, so you know, forty-four something years um, is probably about the age of my soul. Um, and you know, if you want to figure out the age of your soul, real simple, real simple. Are you ready? Figure out when you were born, and you know, and how long you you were, um, you know, in your mom's tummy, and uh, and then you just do the math, and that'll let you know how old your soul is. Somebody talking about the age of the soul as if it's somehow a, a, a number that's disconnected from your the numerical amount of years that your body has been on planet Earth. Well, that sounds like reincarnation. And the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible expressly teaches a different doctrine, not reincarnation. The concept of reincarnation and pantheism and all this kind of stuff is patently incompatible with what God has revealed about man and himself in the word. It's weird that Doug Padgett would talk about the age of the soul. Hmm. Well, are the, the people are really well suited for a certain time of life. 
Like for some people, being in their 20s just grooves with them. And for other people, it's being in their 50s. And, and, and that there's a sensibility that people have where they're like, you know what? My life really kind of made some sense when I was a, young, when I was a parent of young children. And this new stage of life uh, just feels a little more awkward. Or some people are waiting for like their soul's time to kind of, you know, come into, uh, to, to come into being. Yeah. <laughs> soul's time coming into being. Yeah. This, by the way, folks, this is as flat out religious speculation. We're not talking about God's revelation. This is flat out speculation. In other words, idolatry. Do you have a, do you have a sense of any of that? Like are different people sort of well suited for a different stage of, of the, the development of, of, of human life? I bet that's true. Uh, yeah. And, um, Unfortunately, then we we tend to get attached to that and stuck mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. when, in fact... Oh, no, that's terrible. I mean, could you imagine getting attached to a particular time in your life and then having your soul get stuck there? <laughs> oh, no. Do they have some soul unstuck type of lubricant that you can use? I mean, you know, like axle grease or something to help you get your soul unstuck from that? We're, we're all of us being called to the next stage. That's right. You know, they say that everybody's doing the right thing if they're doing their stage well. Uh, they, that's what they say. <laughs> Who's they? You know, uh, where you're at, if you're doing the youthful thing with, with mind and heart and body and soul working together, that's probably what you should be doing. Mm. Uh, right. But then, if you've done it well... Mm-hmm. It starts losing its satisfying aspect. Hmm. Uh, That's what a lot of teachers of growth develop, that you go into what the mystics would call a period of darkness. Hmm. Oh, no, that's terrible. I mean, the last thing I want to do is go into a mystical period of darkness. That just sounds like no fun. It doesn't satisfy anymore. I know. Right. Yeah. I'd com- if, so if you're completely dissatisfied with a particular stage of your life, keep in mind that your soul's probably stuck. And so you are in what the mystics would call, you know, darkness. And so <laughs> so that's just bad news. I mean, because apparently if your soul gets stuck in a particular stage and you don't get it unstuck, then you go into mystical darkness. Man. <laughs> Who will rescue us from this? I know how to do that. I've done that for 15 years. Now something else starts appealing to you. Mm-hmm. If you keep stuck in that place, just doing it over and over again, that's right. what we mean by addiction. Yeah. See, you're addicted to the dark, mystical place. And, and most people are addicted to what they do well. Uh-huh. Why wouldn't you be? I am too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't want to become addicted to what you do well because that could cause your soul to go into darkness while you're being stuck in a particular stage. Right. <laughs> Can anybody tell me the cash value of any of these sentences? Well, Car- Carla had, had actually run into this book, someone in a conversation. We were talking about it for the show today. She said, well, this is the book someone was talking to me about just yeah, last week. literally a week ago. Someone said, well, well you know, I was working on a curriculum for something else, and we were talking about... Um, you know, trying to get people in their 20s and 30s to kind of think more integrated about the way they live out their faith and thinking in terms of vocation and that kind of thing. And and um, and this person I was talking to said, you know, Richard Rohr just wrote an, a book where he talks about this this the uh, the uh, sacrificing part of life and the, and the sacred part of life. Yeah. So you got the sacrificing part of life and then the uh, the what? 
spend, you know. Mm. And when he said mm. that to me, like I wrote it down in my notes because I thought I got to read that book. And now here it is. And here you are. <laughs> because I find it's so many people, you know, like I said, I'm in my mid 40s. And, and, you know, we talk about midlife crisis. And I think that what you're talking about is the definition of the midlife crisis. And it doesn't necessarily hit you at midlife. But it's that that time That's when right. you think there's got That's to right. be more than just going to work every day. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be call- something. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Well, the first half, the survival dance. Survival, that's what it was. And the second half, the sacred dance. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, the survival and the sacred, yeah. Because this is found in um, Second Hesitations, Chapter 43. And if you do the survival skills well, you know, you get your education, you learn some impulse control so you're not thrown in jail mm-hmm. uh, and don't father three illegitimate children. Uh, your life in the second half of life is much easier, frankly. Mm. Sure. Yeah, but what if you, you know, I'm thinking, what about the person who didn't learn the impulse control during the, the what was, I forget whatever part that is, it's not even biblical. And, you know, I mean, what do you got for that person? And the, the, what about the person who fathered or mothered, you know, three, four, five illegitimate children? Um. I mean, you got anything for them? I mean, are they ever are they going to be able to get to the sacred part of the second half of their life? Or are they forever doomed to be in that other part? You know. Now, in the biblical tradition, that would be called the law, <laughs> and I think most of us, of course, mm. tend to the biblical tradition oh, okay. overreact against that because we've all experienced the punitive or limiting character of law. Yeah, but yeah, actually, yeah. it's the best way to start. Because uh, you create that ego structure, that sense of identity, that sense of boundaries, huh? and then, you know what? You don't need to do it anymore because you've done it. <laughs> uh, apparently, <laughs> hey, you, if, you, if you hit the sacred part of your life, you've already done the law. Who needs it anymore? <laughs> Whew, boy, this is... Um... Kind of different. The great paradox. Yeah. yeah. Richard, it strikes me that that kind of message delivered within the construct of religious systems might get a little pushback from, from some of us religious people, right? Because um, if you start to say to people, well, you, you no longer have to live under these controlling systems where <laughs> someone else tells you how it ought to be and how you ought to live and how it ought to yeah, now, now you have Now you have the wisdom. To yeah, now yourself. you have the wisdom. Yeah. Do you find yourself, and I, I know you've been thinking about these ideas, you know, for, for much no, of much of your adult life. about this for two hours, yes. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you could, but, I mean, we're not really having a biblical conversation here, are we? I mean, first of all, let me tell you, I'm a priest in good standing. I've been a priest 42 years. <laughs> okay. But I'm doing nothing more than repeating what St. Paul said in Romans and Galatians. Uh-huh. The good Lutherans of Minnesota will know that. Uh, yeah, uh, the good liberal Lutherans. I, I, this this good Lutheran isn't understanding a word that you're saying, and I'm not finding any cohesiveness with Pauline theology at all. Yeah, right. Uh, that <laughs> right. The law can only get you so far. Mm. Well, the purpose of the law is to show you your sin. It doesn't get you anywhere. It gets you stuck. Mm. And And yet when religion tends by its very nature... Mm-hmm. To keep doing the task of the first half of life over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So apparently the law only applies to the first half of life. Uh, that's my opinion, but I think it's my studied opinion. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you. this is, again, so what are we dealing with here? What 
earth are these people talking about? We're not talking about a biblical passage. We're not exegeting what God has revealed in his word. These are the spiritual opinions, of, granted, educated spiritual opinions, of a Roman Catholic mystic and um, Roman Catholic priest in good standing, um, Richard Rohr. Hmm. Yeah, um, I'm just not seeing any coherence, any logical connection with what God has revealed in his word and the uh, educated opinions of the mystic, Roman Catholic mystic Richard Rohr, because, again, none of this is making a biblical wit of sense. By the way, this falls into the category of just flat-out religious speculation, and Christians are not called to religious speculation. In fact, we are called to believe teach and confess what God has revealed in his word. No speculation needed. We've got what God has revealed. And by the way, kind of on the same idea here, um, from the pomomusings.com website, pomo meaning postmodern, um, yeah, the, uh, the, <clears throat> the emergent uh, Adam Walker Cleveland um, he has he's he dedicated March to reimagining Christianity. Um, in fact, let me read his blog post. It's entitled Reimagining Christianity. Starting in March, I'm going to be hosting a blog series here on Pomo Musings called Reimagining Christianity. I've invited over 20 people to post here on Pomo Musings, but you are more than welcome to write a post on your own blog and leave a comment below with the link, and we'll make sure to add it to the list here. If you do, please use the format name or Reimagining Christianity, Adam Walker Cleveland, or whatever on your blog post title. But blog series authors will be reflecting on one or two, uh, or one or both of the following prompts. What Number one is, what is one belief, practice, or element of Christianity that must die so that Christianity can move forward? and truly impact the world in the next 100 years. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know what I think it is? The thing that needs to die within the visible church, not within Christianity, is uh, the thing that needs to die is the idea that people can reimagine Christianity. That's the thing that's got to go. Uh, number two, uh, what is one belief, practice, or element of Christianity that we must hold on to and live out more fully so that Christianity can move forward and truly impact the world in the next uh, 100. So, yeah, so just name one thing we need to hang on to. Everything is up for grabs. We're just, we're going to reimagine the whole thing, apparently. But uh, by the way, he um, he he went in, in, a, in the next blog post, he actually outlines his hopes for Christianity, uh, for this Reimagining Christianity blog series. And uh, here's what Adam Walker Cleveland writes. He says, on Monday, the Reimagining Christianity blog series will start here on Pomo Musings and run for about two months. I'm very excited about all the folks who are going to be participating in this series, including you. I really do hope that you might also take a few moments to respond to the prompts and share a link to your blog here at the original introductory post. As I reflect on the beginnings of the series, here are a few hopes that I have. Uh, number one, creative theological work. Cre so this is all. So in order to reimagine Christianity, we need some creative theological work. Too often, I think we look backwards, you know, to the past, to the theology that's already been written, and there's a sense that the work has been done for us, and it's up to us now just to argue about what currently exists and decide. Uh, and to decide what's best. I think we can do better than that. In fact, Landon uh, Witsit said this very thing last week when he 
He wrote, quote, if I wake up in 30 years and all theology amounted to is a continued argument for whether insert your favorite theologian was right and whether or not you're living up to a, the legacy of insert your favorite theologian, well, then I'm giving up my ordination. Hmm. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, so, you know, so reimagining Christianity. I mean, who knew that Christianity and what Christianity believes, teaches, and confesses is up for grabs? That we, what really God is calling us to is creativity rather than fidelity. To, you know, just make stuff up, you know, and, you know, as if we know better than God what the message of Christianity is and what Christianity should be doing. We, you know, let's creatively reimagine the whole thing. And, you know, we can just recraft Christianity in our own postmodern image. Oh, isn't that great? And yet, <clears throat> I think about Jude, um, the brother of Jesus. Um, he didn't quite have that approach when it came to Christianity. And in fact, if you're not familiar with the epistle of Jude, one chapter long. So if someone says, turn to Jude chapter 2, well, they're pulling your leg, or either they don't know what they're talking about. But to Jude, the uh, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, starting at verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who do not did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems to me that the ones that, well, the, the the people whom the scriptures warn us about are people who reject authority and rely on their own dreams or visions or creativity or imaginations to reimagine Christianity and deny the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Think about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents 
Judge Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your pastor's just making up his own Christianity and rethinking it, run. I mean that literally run. You're on your way to hell. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, right there in the middle of the page, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, when you click on that, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And just so you know, everybody who's a member of our crew during the month of March, uh, I'm not quite done with it. In fact, it's going to take me probably another week and a half to finish it. But uh, we're at the tail end of uh, putting together our ebook edition of The Origin of Paul's Religion, by the uh, great uh, by the great apologist reformed apologist J Gresham Machen and it, it, I got to tell you it's just a fantastic book against 
modernist rationalistic liberalism, which basically has its, its understanding that, uh, well, miracles are not possible. Therefore, we must cast doubt and radically be skeptical about every claim in the New Testament and come up with an explanation as to how Christians came to these beliefs. And, well, it's all because of that rascally guy, Paul. Uh, classic liberal argument, by the way. And J. Gresham Machen in this work just decimates it. So if you're a member of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew during the month of March, we will be sending out a link to you within the next week and a half to two weeks at the at the latest, um, letting you know how you can download your copy of this fantastic book. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute to uh, Fighting for the Faith, you do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the apprising.org website. Headline reads, Apprising Ministry Exclusive on Rick Warren, Jim Hinch, and Islam. Okay, now before I read to you, I'm not going to read to you the entire post. If you want to see it, it's at apprising.org. Ken Silva had an email exchange with Jim Hinch, the author of the uh, Orange County Register news article regarding Rick Warren and the efforts of Saddleback, and he's the one who wrote the statement that uh, that Saddleback and them are building theological common ground with the Muslims, and that theological common ground includes the belief that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Now, if you remember, at the tail end of last week, last Friday to be exact, uh, Rick Warren put out a white paper. It was originally posted at Ed Stetzer's website, then it was picked up by the Christian Post, where he categorically and flat out said the Muslims and Christians do not view God the same way and that they're not the same God, which I, you know, by the way, I'm still very happy that Rick Warren said that. Unfortunately, in this white paper and in this interview, Rick Warren is evading the heart of the issue. And that is, is that the folks at Saddleback, including Abraham Muhlenberg, who is the interfaith pastor there at Saddleback, are responsible in part, and probably in fact more than that, for creating the confusion uh, that was created in the mind of Jim Hinch. And let me remind you, okay, I'm going to just read the opening portion of this uh, interview. And by the way, you can find it at ChristianPost.com if you want to read the whole thing. And the uh, headline there, by the way, is exclusive. Rick Warren flat out wrong that Muslims and Christians view the same God. This was posted on March 2nd. So if you want to read this at the Christian Post, you can do so. But I'm going to read part of this for you so that you can kind of see where the problem was. Remember, on Friday of last week, I said, yeah, this smells like spin. This this smells like spin. And I'm absolutely convinced there's a reason why this smells like spin. But let me um, read kind of the opening thing, and then we'll jump back to the apprising.org website where – uh, Ken Silva has posted an exchange, or at least, uh, well, an email that was sent to him by Jim Hinch, the author of the original uh, article at the Orange County Register. But uh, just this is by way of reminder. So this is a question to Rick Warren. Question, do people of other religions worship the same God as Christians? Rick Warren, of course not. Christians have a view of God that is unique. We believe 
Jesus is God. We believe God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three separate gods, but one. No other faith believes Jesus is God. My God is Jesus. The belief in God as a trinity is the foundational difference between Christians and everyone else. There are 2.1 billion people who call themselves Christians, whether Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Pentecostal, or Evangelical, and they all have the doctrine of the trinity in common. Now, again, give props where props do. Clear, unambiguous statement that basically says, uh-uh, we don't worship the same God as Muslims, and the distinctive is the doctrine of the Trinity, and that Jesus, God the Son, is uh, is who we worship. Perfectly great answer, and I, I wish it had just ended there. That's all I can say. <clears throat> Next question. A recent newspaper article claimed you believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God, are, that you are in partnership with a mosque, and that you both agreed to not evangelize each other. You immediately post a brief refutation online. Can you expand on that? Warren, sure. All three of those statements are flat out wrong. Those statements were made by a reporter, not by me. I did not say them. I do not believe them. I completely disagree with them. And no one even talked to me about that article. So let me address each one individually. First, as I've already said, Christians have a fundamentally different view of God than Muslims. We worship Jesus as God. Muslims don't. Our God is Jesus, not Allah. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, quote, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Second, while we urge our members to build friendships with everyone in our community, including Muslims and other faiths, love your neighbor as yourself, our church has never had any partnership with a mosque. Friendship and partnership are two very different levels of commitment. Some of our members have hosted a Bible study with Muslim friends, which I applaud, but I've never been to it. And a Bible study certainly isn't any kind of partnership or merger. It's just crazy that a simple Bible study where people explore Scripture with non-Christians would be reported as a partnership, and others would interpret that as a plan for a new compromised religion. Just crazy! Third, as both an evangelical and as evangelist, anyone who knows me and my 40-year track record of ministry knows that I would never agree to not evangelize anyone. I'm committed to my Savior to share the good news with all people everywhere, all the time, in every way possible. Anyone who's heard me teach knows that my heart beats for bringing others to Jesus. Okay, there's a problem. Okay, I pointed this out on Friday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I will reiterate it here and highlight it and circle it, circle maker prayer style, if you would, that um, this this claim by Rick Warren, some of our members have hosted a Bible study with Muslim friends, which I applaud, but I've never been to a Bible study, certainly isn't any kind of partnership or merger. It's just crazy that a simple Bible study where people explore scripture with non-Christians would be reported as a partnership. By the way, folks... um. That is not an honest representation of what happened. And I know for a fact, because I communicated this to Rick Warren via private email exchange, that the, the, the issue lies in the King's Way initiative under the leadership and direction of Abraham Muhlenberg. Now, a week ago on Monday, I pointed out the fact that Abraham Muhlenberg's King's Way document that he co-wrote with Jihad Turk, a Muslim, from a mosque in Los Angeles, 
was what the root was at the root cause of causing the confusion. Well, I've by the way, I've I've had a conversation with uh, Jim Hinch, and I've invited him on the program. I we have yet to hear whether or not his editor is going to sign off on Jim Hinch appearing here on Fighting for the Faith. But just so you know, I have put out a formal invitation to uh, Jim Hinch for an interview here on Fighting for the Faith to discuss this. Whether or not he appears on Fighting for the Faith, uh, Ken Silva tenaciously sought clarification from Jim Hinch and received an email from Jim Hinch. And in this email, Jim Hinch reveals the contents of the Kingsway document written by Abraham Muhlenberg, which is what caused him to come to the conclusion that the theological common ground being built by Saddleback and the, the Muslim community included a belief that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And Abraham uh, and uh, Jim Hinch sent the relevant portion of that document to Ken Silva, and it is published on his website. And I want to read to you the email. Jim Hinch wrote to Ken Silva, and basically here's what he said. Number one, the primary source for this story was a five-page document jointly drafted by Abraham Muhlenberg, a saddleback pastor in charge of interfaith outreach, and Jihad Turk, Director of Religious Affairs at the Islamic Center of Southern California, a mosque in Los Angeles. The document was unveiled at a December 2011 dinner at Saddleback Church attended by approximately 300 Saddleback members and members of Southern California's Muslim community. At the dinner, a PowerPoint presentation described the document and the Kingsway outreach effort, which inspired the document as a, quote, path to end the 1,400 years of misunderstanding between Muslims and Christians, close quote. The document, which was given to me by a source for this story on condition that it not be published in its entirety, outlines several areas of theological agreement between Christians and Muslims and commits members of both faiths to three goals. Number one, becoming friends, making peace, and sharing the, quote, blessings of God with others. Here is how the document describes the points of theological agreement. Number one, who we believe in, one God. The first point, God is one. Please see the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 29, or Muhammad 47, 19. Two, God is the creator, Genesis 1, 1, or Al-Shura 42, 11. God is different from the world, 1 Timothy 6, 16, and An-A'am 6, 103. God is good. God loves, see 1 John 4, 16, and Al-Buruj 85:14 God is just 1 John 1:19 Romans 3:26 and Hud 11:45 See God loves and God's love encompasses God's judgment see 1 Peter 4:8 Al-Araf 7:156 and Al-Ghafir 40 verse 7 Yeah if you, when you see this written out I mean, literally, this King's Way document, the way it is published, the way it is written, it is hard to not come to the conclusion that what was going on here was a theological agreement based upon the presupposition and belief that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. 
uh, quite frankly, Jim Hinch's conclusion seemed like the only logical conclusion based upon what this document states. And if you want to see this, again, it's at apprising.org. So point number two, uh, let me finish what Jim Hinch wrote regarding this. The register story based the phrases same God and one God on the phrasing in this document, in the King's Way document, which states that Christians and Muslims believe in one God. Number two, Rick Warren initially posted a comment to the article claiming that the article contained multiple errors. That comment was later deleted, and I presume by Warren. After seeing that comment, I reached out to Warren's director of communications. On Monday, February 27th, a Saddleback representative called and told me that while the register uh, story was factually accurate, folks at Saddleback would prefer that the opening paragraph read, quote, Muslims and Christians believe that God is one. Following a discussion with a register editor, Saddleback decided to withdraw its request for clarification. At no time has anyone at Saddleback said to me or anyone else at the register that the story contains factual inaccuracies. Number three, Warren states in his white paper that, quote, no one even talked to me about that article, close quote. I made numerous attempts to contact Warren both by phone and by email before the story was published. I was eventually told by Warren's director of communications that Warren was too busy with other projects to speak with me or to email a response to the story's main claims, which I had emailed to the communications director. Instead, I was in t- put in touch with Tom Holliday, an associate senior pastor at Saddleback. I ran all of the story's claims by Holliday, and he affirmed all of them, including the language of the Kingsway document and the fact that the Kingsway was an effort to build bridges of friendship and cooperation, not an attempt to evangelize. During my conversation with Holiday, I asked whether the Kingsway effort, including the December dinner and the theological document, was done with Rick Warren's approval. Quote, of course it has his approval, close quote, Holiday replied. It is neither fair nor accurate to claim that this story was published without attempting to solicit Rick Warren's response. Number four, Warren's claim in his white paper that it is flat-out wrong and that either he or members of Saddleback have promised not to evangelize the Muslims they are working with in the Kingsway effort. As I stated above, that was not what I was told by Tom Holliday. Also, every one of the Muslim sources I talked to for this story emphasized that both sides promised not to evangelize one another. Indeed, Muslims told me that the promise not to evangelize was one of the things that enabled them to overcome their wariness toward evangelicals and build bonds of friendship. Again, no source for this story, including at Saddleback, ever told me that the intent of the Kingsway effort was to evangelize Muslims. Next, this story obviously has generated a great deal of passionate response. I respect Rick Warren's desire to make his views and intentions clear. However, I do not believe it is fair to question the accuracy of the register's story or the way it was reported. I have had several conversations with people at Saddleback 
following the publication of the story, including with the church's director of communications. Everyone I have talked to from the church has told me that the story is entirely factually accurate, but they wish certain phrases had been worded differently. However, since those phrases stem directly from a printed document whose authenticity no one has questioned, everyone agrees that there is nothing in the story to correct. That is coming from Jim Hinch, the man who wrote the article for the Orange County Register. Again, if you want to see this, you've got to see this. You really need to see this. Have I said the back that you need to see this? He he sent the relevant portion of the Kingsway document. By the way, this is not about a Bible study that was misreported as coming to the conclusion that there was, you know, that Muslims and uh, Christians worship the same God. This was about the Kingsway document that was created and crafted and co-written by Abraham Muhlenberg of Saddleback Church, according to Tom Holliday, that Rick Warren had full knowledge of this document. And in that document, it's the theological common ground is clear that that we believe in one God. And then it quotes Bible verses and, and passages from the Quran and other Muslim uh, holy uh, you know, writings to substantiate that fact. Folks, as happy as I am that Rick Warren clearly and unambiguously stated that Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God, I am also equally disappointed with Rick Warren for not coming clean and for confessing and admitting Saddleback's role in creating that confusion. And at this point, it's clear that Saddleback is engaging in spin and damage control and not being forthright about what really happened. This is a flagrant breaking of the commandment that says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's really disappointing is, is that the way this white paper that uh, Saddleback put out is being used and the way they've written it, Jim Hinch, who did nothing wrong, is being thrown under the bus and treated as if he did something wrong, that he purposely slandered or misrepresented what was going on at Saddleback, and he didn't. And furthermore, this document is being used as basically a hammer piece against discernment bloggers and people who are reporting the story as if somehow they are causing damage to the body of Christ. Folks, that is not what has happened. Jim Hinch told the truth. He do, he basically told the story the way he could understand it best based upon the documents that he had there. And he told the truth, and I'm glad he got the truth out at uh, at Ken Silva's blog. But there is something seriously wrong with the way Saddleback is trying to spin this story and spring it back and lay the blame on the people who've reported it and told people about what is going on there at Saddleback. That is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. It is a breaking of the commandment that says you will not bear false witness. Instead, what Saddleback needs to do is confess that Abraham Muhlenberg in, in cahoots with Jihad Turk had written this Kingsway document, and that Kingsway document is ground zero, ground zero for what went wrong 
with Jim Hinch's conclusions, but he, Jim Hinch came to his conclusions honestly, not dishonestly. He wasn't trying to smear Saddleback. He was reporting on the documentation that he was holding in his hands at the time that he wrote that story. And I don't see how you could possibly come to any other conclusion. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We've got an interesting, seeker-driven sermon review for you, talking about, well, spiritual growth, so to speak. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Pay close attention to the proper distinction of law and gospel. It's not properly distinguished in this sermon. In fact, there's some problems. You'll see in just a minute. The bad, the uh, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via North Point Church, Springfield, Missouri. Tommy Sparger presiding. We're going to be listening to the first sermon in the current sermon series there entitled Move. 
And I want you to pay close attention. This is all about, well, moving and taking next steps in your spiritual growth. Definitions matter. We're going to be looking at proper distinction of law and gospel and whether or not the spiritual disciplines that he mentions in the sermon are, well, um, disciplines that are taught in God's Word. You'll notice it's going to be a mixed bag, kind of like a uh, Forrest Gump box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. Let's uh, kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Tommy Sparger and his sermon entitled Move. Listen, I have discovered uh, something, you know, working here at North Point Church and uh, doing ministry for as long as I have and being a lead pastor. What, what I've discovered is that church work can be like extremely easy in, in some ways, but, but also incredibly hard in others. And I'd like to just unpack that for you for just a second. Uh, first of all, the easy part. The easy part is understanding the mission what we're supposed to do because Jesus made that as crystal clear as he could and it's found in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. It's easy to understand this mission and and we call this the Great Commission but Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And and we'll come back to what he has commanded in just a moment. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely... I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So it's very easy to understand the mission. Now, 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 furthermore, when it comes to these commandments that Jesus said, listen, follow these commandments, that's easy to understand as well because one day a Pharisee came up to Jesus and he asked him, hey, uh, Rabbi, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And so Jesus kind of simplified and summarized and he said this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And I love this because it's easy to like understand. It's, it's easy. Verses 36, or I'm sorry, 37 through 40, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and all of your soul, and all of your mind. And this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> he goes- now we're going to pause there for a second. It's important that what you, you, you understand and really think about what it is he just did. He started in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And what does that mean? Well, it means to love God and love neighbor. Okay. Now, it's important to know this. The commandments, love God and love neighbor, are the summary of the Mosaic law. They are the summary of the Mosaic law. Will anybody be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law? Answer, not even one. This is a recurring uh, theme that we have to go back to over and again here at Fighting for the Faith because it seems like in many seeker-driven churches that call themselves Christian They've lost sight of the fact that the Bible makes it clear what the purpose of the law is. By the way, there's three purposes of the law. Number one is to keep us from beating up on our neighbors and stealing our neighbor's stuff. That would be the first use. That's the use that's used by the government. Second use is the primary use of the law. Primary use of the law is to show you what a wretched 
and terrible sinner that you are is to drive you to your knees in despair of your own self-righteousness. And the third use of the law is only for Christians. The third use of a law shows us what a good work is. And you got to understand that when it comes to Christianity, there's it's important to keep a, a distinction in mind. And, and the distinction has been used in the Latin phrases, quorum deo, deo and quorum hominibus. You can think of it just you know, our standing before God and our standing before other human beings that, or our neighbor. That would be the idea. So, so here's the idea, is that before God, quorum deo, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by keeping the law. Why? Because none of us keeps the law. In fact, if any of us could be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law, <laughs> then there's no point in having a Savior. Let's spend a little bit of time in the biblical text so we you know, we kind of flesh this out biblically. So the idea is, is that when we look at passages like love God and love neighbor, over and again, these seeker-driven pastors, very it, kind of in league with pietism, emphasize that p- teaching from Jesus, love God and love neighbor, as if that somehow is the summary of what uh, Jesus is all about. But Jesus is not the new Moses. Jesus is the Savior of the world come to save us from our sins. So Romans chapter 3, I'll start at verse 9. Paul, here in chapter 3, verse 9, is finishing up an argument, a, a, basically a discussion that he began in chapter 1, pointing out that, that, that basically every human being is sold in slavery under sin. Okay, Jew, Greek, everybody. Okay, so this is at the tail end of this argument. And he's going to be quoting from the Psalms here to uh, to make his point. I think it's Psalm chapter 14, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Paul writes, he says, So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, everybody. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now, after reading that, you should sit there and go, hmm, sounds like me. And you know what? You'd be right. That does sound like you. And you know what? It sounds exactly like me, too, because all of us are under sin. None of us, by nature, seeks after God. So Romans chapter 3, verse 19, then Paul begins to take us out of the law talk that he's been giving and the purpose of that law to condemn each and every one of us. Verse 19, he begins to transition out of it. Verse 19, so we now know that uh, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up and the whole world may be accountable to God or held accountable to God. For by works of the law, that would be love God and love neighbor. You got to get this. The commandments, love God and love neighbor, that is not the gospel. Love God and love neighbor is the summary of the Mosaic law, all of it, the law and the prophets, all 10 commandments, every six, you know, 600, all of those verses, all of those commandments in the, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, 
all of them are hinge on love God and love neighbor. And more specifically, they all hinge on love God. Okay. For by works of the law, obedience to love God, love neighbor, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's right. It's the purpose of the law is to show you how lost and miserable you are, to drive you to your knees in despair. So you can be like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, who in the temple courts couldn't lift his eyes up to heaven, but can only pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in that word, have mercy, it means be propitious, propitiate me, a sinner. He's pointing to the sacrifices taking place in the temple for the forgiveness of sins, right? So when we examine your life and mine in light of the Ten Commandments, what is the reflection that comes back from the mirror of the law? You are a sinner. You do not love God with all your heart, and you do not love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think that God that you have to earn God's favor and blessing— through meritorious works whereby you learn how to love God and love neighbor, you are trying to be justified and declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. But here, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21 but now the righteousness of God. Remember, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here, here's, here's where it's revealed. Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, all of this, the forgiveness of sins, righteous, being declared righteous in God's sight, the righteousness of God that is revealed and given to us by faith, all of that is a gift that is received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So the idea is this. We are declared righteous, quorum deo, before God, by grace alone, through faith alone, as a gift from God. It is received 
by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who suffered, bled, and died for your sins and mine. So then why does a Christian good do, do good works? Not to be declared righteous in God's sight. That Christian does not do good works in order to uh, earn brownie points with God or somehow contribute to our salvation. A Christian does good works because God wills for us to do good works. We are a new creation in Christ. We have been regenerated, born again, born anew through the preaching of the gospel, through the basically through the means of grace. We are raised again from the dead. We are raised from the dead, and we are in Christ, a new creation with a new heart, and we can't help but do good works, because that's what Christians do. They do good works. And so we don't do good works so that we earn brownie points with God. We do good works because we are declared righteous and already have a perfect, righteous, right standing before God, all as a gift, one and accomplished by Jesus Christ. So we are now set free to do good works, you can say, you know, for the sake of our neighbor, not for our sake, but truly only for our neighbor's sake, so we can love our neighbor and take care of him help him in bodily need and protect him and things like that. And all of that is, those are good works done for our neighbor, not for our own good works. God doesn't need them. You don't need them. Your neighbor needs your good works, but God doesn't need you to do good works, and neither do you. You don't need to do them. I mean, you're already in Christ. Your good works contribute nothing to your standing before God, but your neighbor needs them, and he needs them badly. And so, we do good works because this is what God wills for us to do. It's not a merit system at all. You get what I'm saying here? But you'll notice that as we listen to the sermon from Tommy Sparger, that discussion of faith and trust and our justification in Christ, it's all missing. To discuss Christian sanctification apart from Jesus' finished work on the cross, apart from us being declared righteous in Christ, apart from the righteousness of God being imputed to us freely as a gift to be received by grace through faith, is to miss the whole point and to enslave people again to the law and to self-righteousness. Love God and love neighbor is not the gospel. Love God and love neighbor is the summary of the law. And that's what condemns each and every one of us. And the purpose of the law, the primary purpose, the second purpose, is to show you how sinful you really are. So, we continue. It goes on to say, all of the law and the prophets, whenever you read that in the New Testament, all of the law and the prophets, that what that's referring to is the entire Old Testament. So Jesus is like giving the cliff notes for the entire Old Testament for spirituality. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So it's so easy to understand the commands. Love God, love each other, and if you can do that, well, well, you're fulfilling everything and you're on your way to spirituality, I think it's... If you can do that, then you're fulfilling everything. Good luck. Good luck. The law commands and tells you to do, and it's never done. The gospel tells you to believe, and it's already done for you. So here he's saying that the key to spirituality is... For you to obey these commands, good luck, because you are not obeying them until you keep them perfectly, plain and simple. 
It's also easy to, to, to see spiritual movement and, and transformation in the lives of those who are obeying these commands. I think we see that in John chapter 14, verse 20. Yeah, point me to, to one person who's obeying these commands. Really? Really? You're obeying them? Let's take a look at your life and see if you're really obeying them. Really? It says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, remember what they are, love God, love each other. So Jesus says, go out and make disciples, teach them to obey what I've commanded. What have you obeyed? What, what, have, you, what have you commanded? Love God, love each other. So whoever... Bad translation, by the way. Whoever has my commands and keeps, it's actually keeps or guards them. Whoever is com- uh, has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. So, so-, so in other words, God's not going to love you until you obey. Good luck. God's going to hate you until you do. If you want to be loved by God by your obedience, you got to keep it perfectly. You got to obey it perfectly. Every minute, every second of every day for the rest of your life. And oh, by the way, you've already broken all these commandments because if you've broken one, you've broken them all. You do it daily, hourly, almost minute by minute in thought, word, and deed by the things you do and by the things you don't do. Think about it. So you see spiritual transformation. Therefore, with all of that, as we start this series move, I conclude that the purpose of the church, and, and not just the purpose of North Point Church, but the purpose of, of, of every church, all churches, Jesus' church, the purpose of the church is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ, disciples of Christ who obey Jesus and love God and others. In other that words... That is what they do. Now, now, now I say all that... In other words, there's no Christians there because they don't keep the law perfectly, right? Fully devoted, obedient. Uh Uh-huh. No gospel here. This is all law. I have to say this. That's the what. And, and, And the what is easy. It's easy to understand. It's the how that's difficult. It's the how that is the hard part. So you're going to, over the course of this series, explain to people how to obey the law so they can be perfectly obedient. That sounds like a losing proposition to me. And, and, and for us, the question is, how do we foster the transformation of people into disciples of Christ? How do we create people that are fully devoted followers of Christ? How do we see spiritual movement? Well, for the next 12 weeks or so, and that's how long this series is going to be, at least 12 weeks, we're going to go as long as it takes. I mean, we, we may be doing this for a year. I don't know, but, but I'm shooting towards about three months. For the next 12 weeks, we're going to deal with the how. How do we get people to move from where they are to the place of spiritual growth? How in the world do we accomplish that? And, and- yeah, so the how. How do we, in the place of spiritual growth is obedience to the law. Good luck. And what we're going to do with this series is base it on a very important book called Move. And, and, and this book documents a fascinating study called Reveal. And this is a survey taken from about 250,000 church attenders in over 1,000 churches. And that- By the way, the Reveal study was put out by Willow Creek. So all of this is based upon a survey conducted by Willow Creek rather than the clear teaching of the Word of God.
the heart of this study. And, and listen, today I'm building a foundation for this series and you're going to be drinking from a fire hydrant. So if you have a pen, take notes. But, but, but at the heart of this, at this study, and, and we're going to talk more about this in just a few minutes and way more about it as the weeks progress. But at the heart of this study, this survey identifies a spiritual continuum comprised of four segments of church attenders at different stages in their spiritual development. And those stages, those segments are exploring Christ, growing in Christ, close to Christ, and Christ-centered. Furthermore, the study gives in. Now, as he unpacks this, listen carefully to see if faith and trust and justification by grace through faith alone is discussed or just rank, stark naked obedience to the entire summary of the law, love God and love neighbor, as if that's really easy to accomplish. Insights about what creates spiritual movement along the journey. And, and see, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is we need movement. Now, now, now we all need to move on our journeys of spiritual growth. And, and that may be where you're having your problem. Maybe you're stuck and you're not sure why. You, you open the Bible, you look at it, the, the words used to leap from the pages into your soul, and now you just kind of go... Deuteronomy. It's not doing nothing for you right now. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you, you just feel sluggish in your walk with God. And it doesn't feel like you can pray. Maybe for you, like you can't find enough evidence there to, to, to give your life to Jesus. And you're searching. You're trying to figure this out. For others of you, you've been in church for a long time. And right now you just feel like the church isn't challenging you. The church isn't deep enough for you. Or, 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 or you're just in that place where you're just treading water and deep down in your soul and you know this is true if 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 you could say you need any one thing it would be movement you need to move well, well the bottom line the main idea of this series the main idea of this series is that spiritual growth and maturity calls for constant movement constant movement it's it's not an option just to stay still and we will dare you and we will challenge you and we're going to get under your skin and we're going to pull you and we're going to push you and we're going to come to your house and stalk you. Just kidding. But we're going to get you to move during this series. And, and, and listen, let, let me just give you a truth right now. And I'm going to give you so much information today. You're going to be like, good night. Does this guy know he has next week too? The answer is no. I'm going to give as much to you as I can today. But one truth, one truth right now, and you can write it down. A person's spiritual maturity is as much or more a reflection of what they do in their everyday lives as it is within the church building. And, and really what that means... You have to take responsibility for your own spiritual growth because the most important things to you are the daily disciplines, the daily practices, the daily grind of knowing God. So it's all up to you. God and understanding Him and having faith and reading your Bible and praying and journaling. And in fact, I'll tell you this, and it's a confession. And, and, and I get this from the Reveal study. The, the Reveal study is so fascinating. Not from the Bible. Fascinating the things that it uncovered. I think this is a confession not only for me, but probably should be a confession for 90% of the churches out there. And, and, and here is the confession. And, and for those of you raised in church, this will sound familiar to you. You're going to get this. Uh, here's the confession. For years and years and years, churches have had a model for spiritual growth. And the model looks something like this. This, this is going to, you're going to recognize this. The, the model looks something like this. Church activity... The busier you are inside the four walls of the church, church activity equals spiritual growth. 
So, so the more we can get you to do and volunteer and join the choir and, and ring the bells and pass out the communion and pass out the bulletins and go to our Sunday school classes and do the, 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 the more church activity that we can get out of you, well, that equals spiritual growth. Now, now, now don't get me wrong. Church activity does help some people in certain stages of their spiritual development more than others. But here's what you have to know. Activities by themselves, church activity barely moves people to love God more, which is everything. Because Jesus said, go into the whole world, make disciples. So church activity won't make you love God more, but he's got the secret, the the know-how to help you love God more. Okay. Teach them to obey what I command. What do you command? Love God, love others. And for some reason, all the church activities, it doesn't produce that. It's not that church activities are wrong or not good. It's just it doesn't necessarily move your heart. And see, here's a problem. Churches have set unrealistic expectations for themselves and for what they could reasonably provide. So don't you think it's an unrealistic expectation to seem to think that you can give people the secrets so that they'll love God and love neighbor perfectly? We sold you a bill of goods. We want you to do all of our stuff. So we told you all of your spirituality is going to happen inside of these four walls. We told you we could be Walmart for spirituality, baby. Come in and get your tires rotated. Buy your milk. (laughs) Get your underwear all at the same time. It's Walmart. Come in. It's a one-stop shop. It doesn't work that way. And if a church claims it can work that way, it's an illusion. See, looky, looky, look, look. I like that word looky, by the way. My parents used to say that. They were intellectuals. Looky. So, so looky, I'm, I'm going to share with you a, a great reveal study finding. Taking too much responsibility for other spiritual growth fostered an unhealthy dependence of church people on the church and its staff. An unhealthy dependence on the church people and its staff. In other words, you're on your own. Don't come to church and have an unhealthy dependence on your pastor to help you in your spiritual growth. You're on your own, man. Um, Sorry. I mean, I don't know why you would go to church, but I mean, you're on your own. You don't have an unhealthy dependence on your pastor to help you with this stuff. And that's a fact. It's high time you... Take responsibility for your own spiritual growth. Now, now, listen, real quickly, let me give you some more reveal findings. Remember that study where, where they surveyed 250,000 people in churches? Yeah, you're on your own. Some of the things they found, here's something else they found. Church activities do not predict or drive long-term spiritual growth. Now, now it doesn't mean they're not good. And, and, and they help the most in the earliest stages of spiritual growth. But... Personal practices like reading your Bible, reflecting on Scripture have a greater influence in your life and can change your heart and and, and can change your life. Now, I want to make something clear. Reading your Bible is a very good thing to be doing. Absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, you ought to be reading your Bible. But notice he put it under the general category of spiritual practices. Hmm. More so, especially for people in the latter stages of spirituality. Now, 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 here's another reveal finding. Nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on Scripture. Nothing. 
The, the, the 250,000 people over a thousand churches that they ask every question you could ask and they're looking for what moves people spiritually. That's what this reveal study is. And, and the number one thing, and I don't know why it would ever be surprising, the number one thing is Bible reading, scripture reflection. If you hear nothing else I say, if you zone me out for the next three months, hear this one thing. Get a Bible, get a Bible reading plan, read it, pray over it, journal, reflect on Scripture. You're going to hear this over and over and over from me for the next few weeks. Here's another reveal finding. Spiritually stalled or dissatisfied people account for one out of four church attenders. East Sunshine, Norton Campus, North Point Church, every church that exists, at least one out of four people are not satisfied. They're stuck. They're stalled. They expect too much out of a church. It's not deep enough. It's not whatever enough. I, or, or in your spiritual life, it's just not there and you're not satisfied. That's where people are. Now, now here's another finding from Reveal. And I think it's fascinating. There is no one size fits all for spiritual growth. And, and the reason is because people are in so many different places in their spiritual development. Now, now here's where that becomes kind of a pickle and, and something hard for church staff and leaders to negotiate. It's very hard because everyone's in a different place in their spirituality. It is so hard to create now a program that fits everyone. It's so hard. Now, 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 let me show you something that Jesus said one day. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. Now pay attention to how he <clears throat> mishandles this text. He's going to try to take Matthew chapter 13 and make it teach this the spiritual uh, continuum, apparently, that the Reveal Now study discovered. That's not what Matthew 13 is about, but listen in. A parable, and a parable is a story that someone 2,000 years ago in Jesus' culture would make up to tell a story and then drive home a spiritual point. So he's talking about people in different stages in their spirituality, and so he tells this parable. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up, and some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. And when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. And other seed fell among the thorns and grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, <clears throat> let him hear. The disciples did not have ears and they heard nothing. So they're like, what gives? We don't understand. So later on, Jesus explains this parable to them. And he explains it in verses 18 through 23. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. And the one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word at once, receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. But when the trouble and persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. And the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. 
But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, and he produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Jesus is talking about people in different places in their spiritual movement. Uh, no, he's not. That's not what the text is saying. He just read it. I mean, he's eisegeting at this point. Matthew 13, verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That would be the word of God. This is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root. He endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit. Notice it says he understands it. He bears fruit yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. So yeah, reading God's word is really critical to spiritual growth, but this isn't about spiritual growth or a continuum or anything like that. Weird. Or path or growth. This could describe you. Jesus is talking about people that are stalled in their spirituality. He's talking about people... No, he's not. That, that are starting to believe that if there is a God, maybe there's something wrong with him because he let a family member die. Jesus is, is talking to people that are mature in their faith and, and they're growing and they understood his story when he told them that story. Jesus is talking to people that are just starting the journey and they're excited. They just don't know what to do next. What are they supposed to do so that their spirituality can take off like a rocket? Are they supposed to pray? Are they supposed to read the Bible? Are they, what are they supposed to Jesus is talking to all kinds of people and, and he's talking to people like us. Now, that said, I quickly want to show you three things. Now, now I'm giving you a ton of information today. I'm laying a foundation for the rest of this series move. But, but I want to show you three things. And the first thing is the spiritual continuum. There are four segments of church attenders. So, so most of us would fall in any one of these four segments. And, and the first segment I want to talk about it would be those of you that are exploring Christ. Now, if you're exploring Christ, what this means is that you have a basic belief in God, a basic belief in spirituality. You, you, you want your faith to grow, but it's hard for you. It's, it's, you're unsure about Christ and his role in your life and what that really means. But, but maybe you're very connected to church and you're a regular church attender and you love. Now notice he's trying to make Matthew 13 fit the results of the reveal study, but the whole thing is built on a faulty premise. Yeah, it really is. And this is all law, no gospel, just obedience as if that's really easy. Your kids are plugged in and you need spirituality and this is a good network and it feels good. You're just unsure about all of that Christ and Christianity stuff. You're trying to make your mind up. You're exploring Christ. Now, now the next group that, that I'll tell you about, maybe you're in this group, would be those of you that are growing in Christ. Now, 
And, and, and next week, by the way, we're going to go into way more detail about all four of these segments. But if you're growing in Christ, that means you have a personal relationship with Jesus. You've made that commitment. You've gone from exploring Christ to growing in Christ. And, and you're just beginning to learn who Jesus really is and, and what it takes to develop a relationship with him. And then there are those of you that, that are close to Christ. And if you're close to Christ, this means you're depending on Christ every day. You seek him, you pray on a daily basis, you turn to him for help and guidance. You need him in your life and you care about him with all of your heart. And, and I'm simplifying this a little bit. And I know it's hard to categorize everyone. I, I, yeah, you love him with all of your heart. Mm-hmm. I get that, but, but we're going to use these terms and these definitions for the next few weeks. By the way, if you want to make the claim that you love Jesus or God with all of your heart, that means you never sin, because every sin that you commit is flat-out rebellion against God. So do you really love God with all your heart? Or are you in need of Jesus Christ, the Savior who loved God perfectly with all of his heart, and whose righteousness is given to you as a gift by grace through faith? I just want to introduce you to them. Here's the next group. Those, the, the next segment would be those of you that would be Christ-centered. Now, now, let me just say this. Those of you that are Christ-centered, there, there's probably one word that best describes you, and that word is surrender. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. You, you would say that the single most important relationship in your life is, is Jesus Christ. And it's not that other people wouldn't say that. It's just that for you, all of your actions back up your words. And you would literally give up anything for him. His will be done. You give up career. You would give up anything. It is the most intimate relationship in your life. Now, now let me just say this about the church. The church needs to celebrate your maturity. And the church needs to... Really, they need to celebrate our... Yeah release you into ministry and sometimes that means beyond the four walls of the church so many times in in a church setting well we want to keep everyone in our church doing stuff for us well the 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 truth is you if you are a person's christ-centered you're going to be a spiritual entrepreneur and we need to be able to release you and let that happen so so the spiritual continuum four segments of church attenders you're a spiritual entrepreneur and we need to release you I don't know what that means. It might mean if you're a spiritually mature person, get out of our church. You're going to mess everything up. I, I don't know. Flooring Christ, growing in Christ, close to Christ, Christ-centered. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about is spiritual movement, but because that's the heart of this study. It's the heart of everything we're doing for the next few weeks. We want you to move. I want to move. We're going to help each other move. We're going to progress. We're going to go down this path. And as people grow spiritually, they move from one segment to the next on the spiritual continuum. So, so listen, this is important. So everybody zone in. Everybody that's with me, raise your right hand. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Other right hand. Come on, everybody say 2012 East Sunshine, Norton Campus, count of three. One, two, three. <laughs> You're pathetic. Okay, let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Whatever. Okay, here are the three movements. Now, now pay attention because some of you are going to be able to relate to this and you've experienced this in your own life because you've connected with Jesus and you read your Bible and you grew and, and you discovered your gifts and your talents and you had this intimate relationship with Him. You, you've experienced some of these movements. So, so let me just tell you what these three are. And again, later on in this series, we will explore these more in depth. But movement number one is when you go from exploring Christ... And this is so natural, this has to happen to growing in Christ. Now, movement one, it's all about the basics. Mm, okay. Um, 
What about repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? You know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Um, how, how Does that work into this transition between the one to the other? It's all about sound doctrine that you buy into and believe in and you're building a firm foundation of spiritual beliefs and trust. And, and, and really, I said before, church activities can't really move your heart, but it does help many of us. And, and in fact, the impact of church activities on spiritual growth is most significant in this first movement. Movement number one, go from exploring Christ to growing in Christ. Movement number two, movement number two is when you go from growing in Christ to close to Christ. Now, movement two is all about when people decide that their relationship with Jesus Christ is personal to them. They buy into it. They put their faith in it. They develop and begin to develop a routine of spiritual practices, Bible reading, prayer, tithing, journaling that creates intimacy in their life with God and they begin to love God and love others more. And then there's movement number three and this is when you go from close to Christ to Christ-centered. Now movement three, again... Now I want to point this out again. This isn't based on a clear biblical teaching. This is just the speculations. Um, The conclusions come to as a result of a sociological survey conducted by Willow Creek called Reveal. It's all about surrender. It's all about you becoming Christ-like. It's all about self-sacrifice and caring about the kingdom more than you would care. Self-sacrifice. Not Jesus's, but yours. ...about your own kingdom. It's, it's that place where you've mastered the daily practices of Bible reading and prayer. and You have an intimacy with God and you are loving God and you're loving others and you're thinking like God thinks and you're reaching out to your community. And, and I can't tell you exactly when one person crosses from one thing to the next. I believe that we all need movement in our journey. And, and, and let me just say this. Let me just give you two notes. The first note is none of us ever, ever arrive You know, just because you're like Christ-centered, that doesn't mean you get a badge that says, I'm now a captain in heaven or anything like that. Because the truth is, we all stand in need, no matter how mature we are, of a God who came to this planet and gave his life on a cross. We all need grace. Yeah, what do we need it for exactly? I mean, yeah, you say we need grace, but what exactly do we need it for again? Humility, none of us have ever completely arrived. That's one thing. The other thing that you need to understand is how complicated this all is. Because the truth is that there are so many people just just at East Sunshine and Norton Campus right now. I mean, for, for, forget every other place on this planet, but just the people at North Point Church, there, there are so many people at different segments uh, of, of their spiritual journey, and they have so many different spiritual needs that the church will never be able to be everything to everyone. Well, what does that mean? That means, first of all, as a church, we need to acknowledge that, and we need to get really good at being flexible. We need to get really good at, at understanding that people are in different places in their spiritual journey and, and be able to come alongside and mentor, help, coach, instruct, have different things for different people. We need to get good at that. Spiritual movement, that, that's what this whole series is all about. Now, now, let me talk about a third thing really quick because movement is what this series is all about. So then the question is, how in the world do you create movement? Now, now we're going to talk... Yeah, because where in the world does the Bible talk about creating movement as a means of 
attaining spiritual growth so that you can obey the law. Talk about that for 12 weeks, but let me give you just a few things before you leave here today. If you're going to create movement in your spiritual walk, the first thing that the church has to do and that you have to do, we have to look at systems and practices. Now, by now where does the Bible talk about these systems and practices so that we can, you know, this is the how, you know, so that we can figure out how. These are the systems and practices that make it so that you can. This is the how so that you can love God and love neighbor. Why isn't this taught in the Bible? Systems, here's what I mean. As a church staff, here's what you need to know about us. This new year, we're going to examine every ministry that we have in this church, and we're going to ask ourselves how we can improve our systems to help people to move, to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ, to help people love God and others more. We're going to look at our systems in this church. Now, practices, the practices are yours. So, so, so what we're going to do in this new year and throughout this series is we're going to dare you to move. And we're going to be talking to you about spiritual practices throughout this series. In fact, there's seven that I can think of. And, and, and we're going to talk to you about these. We're going to challenge you with these. But if you incorporate these seven practices, I promise you it'll change your life. Reflection on scripture. Number one, Bible reading. Number two, you're going to hear about these again in this series. Number three, prayer to seek guidance, God's guidance. Number four, prayer to confess sins. Five, tithing. Six, journaling. Seven, solitude. If you incorporate those seven practices. Tithing, journaling, and solitude? Uh-huh. So that's the how. See, if you want to love God more and love your neighbor, you got to tithe, journal, and... Be alone in solitude. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. Oh boy, this is bad. Of. I'll say them again. Reflection on scripture, Bible reading, prayer to seek guidance, prayer to confess sins, tithing, journaling, solitude. If you wrote all of those down, you're a good note taker. If you incorporate those into your life, your life will change. Now, now, now. Let me just say this because if you incorporate those into your life, your life will change. That's the how on how to love God. Well, then why is it that the Bible says that um, for if righteousness could be through the law, then Christ died for no reason? That's what it says in the book of Galatians. Why didn't it say, listen, obeying the law is easy. Loving God and loving neighbors is, is really easy. All you need to do is these seven practices, including tithing, journaling, and solitude. And you know, over a period of time, you'll figure it out, and you're going to love God with all your heart. It's super simple. Just get cracking. Because we're talking about creating movement. Uh, nothing creates movement more than, and let me just emphasize it one more time, the B-I-B-L-E. Read it. Understand it. I agree with him. Read and understand your Bible so that you will understand that what he's saying isn't biblical and you'll leave that church. Develop a plan to reflect on it. In fact, in fact, in fact, when you reflect on scriptures, keep this in mind. We put an insert in your bulletin today, and, and it says, make a move. And all this really is, is us coming alongside of you and, and helping you by giving you several Bible reading plans and ideas for journaling. So check this out. Come up with a Bible reading plan like right now and, and incorporate it in your life. If you do nothing else but start to read your Bible, your, your spiritual life will begin to move. Here's another thing that creates movement. I mean, where's faith in Christ? The righteousness that's by faith, what, it's not there at all. This is just 
pure, unadulterated, legalistic, works righteousness. And what's been missing the entire time are the, is the secret key to these seven spiritual practices. All you got to do is do these, and that's the secret ingredient as to how to love God and love neighbor. And blammo, then you're obedient. That, <laughs> oh, man. When you create ownership in your own life, now, now, let me tell you what I mean by this. You have to move to that place where you don't just go to church or you're a member of a church or you belong to the church. You have to move to that place where you are Christ-centered and you are the church. You gotta, you gotta, you got this. Notice he's not teaching from a biblical text here. These are just... The imperatives that you're supposed you gotta you gotta you gotta we'll get cracking you gotta 24 7 you are a spiritual bomb about to go off you are a christ-like entrepreneur you're not even waiting christ-like entrepreneur there's a lot of verses in the bible to talk about that for the organized church to tell you what to do you're out there making it happen because you own this thing Here's another thing that creates movement, and, and we're going to partner with you as a church. We believe in this with all of our heart. We're going to dare you to change your local community. In North Point Church. Yeah, there you go. I dare you. Change your local community. Go for it. I dare you. Church, we're going to have increased acts of social justice in the Springfield area. Mm-hmm. Increased acts of social justice. Weird. Liberal language, isn't it? <laughs> We're going to go out there and help the needy, the broken, and the down and out in this community and in this world. And here's what we want to be as a church. I, I'll make it real simple. We don't want to be just a church where, where people come to that church. We want to be a church where, where the church goes to the people. And yeah, that'd be just about every church. Serious. Think about it. When I, I attend a small church. I'm a member of a small Lutheran church. Okay. And, uh, you know, we got maybe about 150 yeah, tops, 200 people show up any given Sunday. So let's just say, you know, we packed the place out. We got 200 some people there. And, uh, and, you know, here's the deal. We've got people who are farmers that attend our church. We got people who are secretaries, school teachers, students, uh, people who work for large corporations, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, maybe that's bad. You can't do social justice if you work for a pharmaceutical company, right? Uh, you know, they work for auto dealerships. I mean, they, we got a gentleman who's a, a, a primary care physician. Uh, and so you got all these people doing all these things, right? So here's the deal. We come together as the church. And as the church, we, when we are at church, we hear God's word. We have the Lord's Supper together. We engage in Bible study. We have fellowship time. We pray together. And then when we're done, we all go back to our different vocations out there in the world, loving and serving our neighbor in the vocation that God has put us into. Yep, of mom, dad, student, a child, doctor, lawyer, uh, corporate executive, farmer, all that kind of stuff. So each and every one of the people at our church, they don't just go to church. Every day, when you know the rest of the week, they're out there loving and serving their neighbor in the vocation that God put them into. Absolutely true. And not only us organizing ourselves to go to the people, but you individually, twenty four seven, every day, you are the church. You're going to the people. So, 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 create movement, create movement, create movement. That's what we're going to challenge you with. Now, I feel like I've have so many points and so many notes that you're drinking from a fire hydrant today 
Yeah, fire hydrant with sulfur in the water. And I promise you in the upcoming weeks, I will slow down and take it one point at a time. But you may be wondering, okay, with everything that you've given us today, Tommy, what is the takeaway for today's talk? And, and I would think of three things that you could take from this talk today. Number one, commit to being here for the next few weeks. I think this might be one of the most important series, that, if not the most important series that we've ever done at North Point Church. Yeah, jesus list series. So be here for the next several weeks. Uh, second thing is, come up with a Bible reading plan like right now. Just make up your own. Right now and start reading the Bible. Although it's really good for you to read the Bible, I strongly recommend it because the more the people at Tommy Sparger's church read the Bible, the more they'll realize he ain't teaching it right. In this new year, that's the second thing. The third thing is this, believe that you can spiritually move. You can move. It's the beginning of a new year. It's a new day. Yeah, just God move. Is- just, you know, I don't know where the Bible talks about movement, but you can move. Get on with it. Start moving. It has a plan for you. So, so, so for every one of us here at, at, at Norton Campus, East Sunshine Campus, whether you are exploring Christ, whoever you are, maybe you're growing in Christ right now, or you're close to Christ, or you're Christ-centered, you're thriving in your spirituality, you're stuck, you're stalled, you're somewhere in between. Listen, for every one of us, every one of us here, I dare you to move this new year. I dare you. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dare you to move. I dare you to move out of that church into one that actually teaches the Bible. I dare you. So that, uh, oh, man. That's, by the way, folks, what Tommy Sparger is preaching about here, this has become the standard um, product, if you would, the spiritual discipline, so-called spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. This is the standard product that these seeker-driven churches are promoting as the means by which you experience spiritual growth. Weird. Hmm. It's weird. Just, you know, I just don't see these spiritual disciplines quite the way they're described by the um, seeker-driven guys. Now, granted, I mean, you could describe prayer and Bible reading as a discipline. Yeah, but you got to understand, it's God's will for you to read his word, and, and God has, it's his will for you to pray. As far as the solitude and journaling stuff and and all that other stuff, hmm, that sounds awful foreign, kind of weird. And I bet you anything, you know, when it talks talking about prayer and and reading God's word, they may be more along the lines of having mystical experiences. I'm just saying that seems to be the thing that's in vogue nowadays. Weird though, isn't it? Yeah. If yeah, I, <clears throat> so there you go. What'd you think? You know, I, I'd love to get your feedback regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can email me my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.